Hello, friends. Welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to Wednesday Wake Up. Today, we have a special episode with our guest, Carla McLaren. Carla McLaren is the author of The Language of Emotions, What Your Feelings Are Trying to Tell You. She's also the author of The Art of Empathy and Embracing Anxiety. Today, we'll be talking about a new edition of her book, The Language of Emotions. Welcome, Carla. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for coming. I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah. I wanted to um, just begin by saying I became familiar with your book uh, during grad school when I was training to be a therapist. And... uh, Recently, I was sitting down with a meditator before I knew you were going to be coming on to the podcast, and we were sitting having a conversation, and they brought out your book in the conversation, (laughs) and we started talking about you and your work, and then I looked at the name, and I thought, I think... I think that's the, this is the person that we're going to be talking with. And then, uh, so anyway, I had a conversation with a meditator and we were talking about you know, emotions in your book. And so I got really excited to see that. In fact, it is you um, coming to talk to us about emotions. And uh, I just wanted to invite you to talk about what, what sparked the re-release and new edition of the book. <laughs> in a nutshell, I was wrong about many of the things that I wrote. And, and it's only after having written it that, you know, and, and working with it over a period of time that I became able to see, oh, you did not have that emotion. You did not have that dialed in. You were close, but not close enough. And there was an entire emotion that was left out, which was anxiety. Um, Mm -hmm. You mentioned the book Embracing Anxiety, which I wrote as an apology to my friend Anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) I love how you honored anxiety by apologizing it with a tome about anxiety, you know, giving it its regal due. So yes, I will write a whole book for you, my friend. Uh, And so it's wonderful to have anxiety in the language of emotions now, because in 2009, when I wrote it, I saw anxiety as a problem, which mm. is what how most people have been taught to look at it, right? Of course. It's like, it's a problem. And so I, you know, I was just really in a, um, in an ignorant place about, about it. So in many of the, many of the emotions stayed as they were. I was like, good, nice job, nicely done. And then I got into some chapters and went, oh, we're going to need a bigger boat. (laughs) Yeah. This chapter's going to need some help. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say, don't read that book, you know, like throw it away. But it's so nice to be able to grow as a writer and as a person and, Mm -hmm. and not have this book holding me back in 2009 where what I knew then. That's great. Yeah, I admire the fact that you could take it as your own learning experience and you grow with your audience and with, you know, your yeah. own research and your own experience, which is amazing. Yeah. And it's, it's just a testament to your commitment to the two emotions, right? Because the, yeah. the whole orientation you have to your book and what really resonated with me is how you really encourage us to honor emotions, not just accept them, but get to know them, to yeah. see the colorful voices and personalities of emotion and uh, 
the messaging that that they have, which to me was uh, pretty amazing. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about the well, what I got out of the book, both originally and now I'm knee deep in the, the second uh, re-release of it here. What I really got out of it was this blind spot that I had, and I think many of us had, of growing up in cultures where emotions are uh, categorized in this polarity. On the one hand, they're either repressed, which is kind of the, a lot of tendency, repressed or shamed or seen as problems or something to push away or to dissociate from, you know, in some way. Or on the other hand, they're glorified and made regal and given sort of crowns and praised <laughs> in particular ways, but at the expense of other emotions. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that journey for you and, and that part of the book, this trying to free emotions from this dichotomy or polarity of one cage or the other, so to speak? Yes, in psychology and psychiatry, it's called valencing. And if you remember in chemistry, you would valence atoms, so there'd be a positive and negative charge. And that's pretty much exactly what they're doing in psychology and psychiatry. That they're saying, okay, this emotion is negative or unpleasant or antisocial. This emotion is positive, it's pleasant, it's pro-social. The problem I saw throughout my life is that if an emotion is categorized as negative, you're not going to want to work with it. You're not going to want to learn mm -hmm. how to, pretty much you'll want to run screaming from it or, <laughs> right. you know, throw it under the rug and let's pretend something else, right? So having an emotion called negative makes you emotionally ignorant. But having an emotion called positive, which means, of course, you always want to have it, means that you're going to tend to go over to those so-called positive emotions and move your entire house of furniture in there, right? <laughs> Take up residence yeah. in one side of the, the polarity. <laughs> try, yeah, yeah, try to have these emotions no matter what. And they actually, there's a, there's a term for this. It's called toxic positivity bias, right? That you can, you can so truncate your emotional world that you don't have the full range of responses that a human being would have, <laughs> right? Remember those? And, and you instead just have these basically three emotions that you can work with, happiness, contentment, and joy. And so if something happens where the other emotions are necessary, you're out of luck. You're uh, just I out see. of luck. And then you're going to try to throw more happiness, contentment, and joy on it when the other emotions are standing in the background going, you're going to fall on your butt right now. Okay, just let us out. <laughs> right, right. It, it, it sounds like what you're saying is that the more we practice looking at it as this valence of positive, negative, yeah. the more we sort of ostracize one side of it. And in, in ostracizing or pushing away one side of the emotional spectrum, yeah. we really lose access to it, probably at the level of feeling, like bodily mm -hmm. sensations. But like you said, also losing the message, the wisdom. Yeah and the power and benefit of that side. And equally, when you sort of live on one side continuously, your actual attitudinal orientation, I'm imagining, becomes so far leaning into what you're calling toxic positivity, yeah. where you're craving positivity at all costs and not feeling the whole depth of possible human experience. And it yeah. becomes kind of a lack of skillfulness in the way you're, you're being in the world. Is that what I'm hearing there? Yes, and the Jungians will also point out that whatever's in the shadow, you know, becomes very powerful. Yes. So yes. your anger doesn't set boundaries, it destroys them. When you know, when it finally gets out, it 
it goes it goes off so there's a lot of power in the shadow and i came to this work from jungian shadow work uh, which i studied as just a very young child and i kind of looked at the emotions and i thought there is the most shadow that you could find is in the emotions there's bright shadow there's the adored idealized shadow of the so-called positive emotion there's the hated you know despised shadow i was like if I could get into the emotions, I could find everything. All of the right. gold would be there. And I wasn't wrong. <laughs> That's where right. they are. Yeah. 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 I love that. I love that journey. That's amazing. <laughs> I want to offer a quote here from the book that I thought was just, it's this nice little overview of the messages and the way that we sort of displace uh, negative emo Well, what we're calling negative emotions. I'm even using that term as we speak, right? It's hard negative. not to. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's totally culturally in there. And, and I love how you said... In one part of the book, you say that culture has, every culture or subculture has unconscious rules about how we experience and process and address emotions. Yeah. And I hope we can touch on that a little bit later, but that really resonated with me as well, that we have unconscious rules that we're following that we don't even know we're following about how we're feeling, which is a pretty interesting, interesting thing. So you say this in one part of the book that I thought was a nice little summary here. It says... For example, anger acts as the honorable sentry or boundary holder of the psyche, but most information about anger focuses on unhealthy expressive behaviors such as exploding at people or unhealthy repressive behaviors such as self-silencing. Sadness offers life-giving fluidity and rejuvenation, but very few people welcome sadness. Most people barely tolerate it. Situational depression isn't a disease but a strangely ingenious constellation of factors that erect a vital stopgap in the psyche. And fear is our intuition and our instincts about the present, without which we would be endangered at all times. But this goes directly against accepted beliefs about fear. Mm -hmm. this, real, this type of writing that you do throughout the book really resonated with me. As a therapist and as a Dharma teacher, I'm not completely you know, in the dark about bringing emotions out in people and working with them. Yeah. But even, even with that being stated, when I was in graduate school, I had to take an elective class to, to learn about emotions. Yes. All of the primary classes you take as a therapist are behavioral, attachment, psychotherapy, psychopharmacology, interpersonal. But you do not learn as a therapist to welcome emotions, be present with emotions. I had to learn emotion work with from books like yours and from self-help authors who really dove into emotions. Isn't it funny? It's really interesting. It's kind of tragic because when I have emotional problems, the only place I can go is to a therapist, right? And the therapist would be like, um, <laughs> come on in. Let's just wrestle it out. I don't even know what I'm doing. <laughs> yes, yes. That's what I love. What I love about your book is that, you know, in therapy, we're taught to ask or reflect back to the person. So how does that make you feel? But that's about all we get unless we have extra training. Once the client says, I feel this way, there is absolutely no depth of experience to understand what, um, you know, what we're doing there. So I, I appreciate your work for, for, for that reason. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit about uh, going with that. I I wanted to just touch a little bit about something that you frame in the book. Um, you talk about being an emotional genius or the possibility <laughs> of empathy towards emotions and empathy work and, and emotion work being a form of intelligence. Can you talk a little bit about that skill that's really being harnessed in the book, this ability to 
to, to relate to our emotions differently, I guess. Yeah. My family is full of the geniuses you can count with, you know, Stanford Binet or, or Weschler IQ tests. We got those. <laughs> and artistic geniuses and music geniuses. And when we were young, we sort of felt that we owned the term genius. And so we'd, you'd be a cake making genius or you'd be a car spotting genius. And we would, my brothers would say, oh, you're an emotional genius. And it would always make everybody fall down laughing, just like squealing with laughter that anyone who was emotional could be a genius. And I thought about that a lot. I said like, well, could you then? Because I'm very stubborn. It's like, if you think that's funny, wait till you see my career. (laughs) 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 But, But yeah, the idea that emotion equals the opposite of intelligence right? The opposite of logic, the opposite of any kind of, of, of fluid, intelligent discourse. <clears throat> you don't want emotions there. And we all hear people say, uh, we'll talk when you're not so emotional. Oh, wow. Yeah. Right. right? You're getting emotional here. So let's just shut down right now and everybody go lay down. So there's no, so. no one says you're getting too logical. It, it, yeah. That's that's we, maybe in some cases, but that's not the big one, right? You're becoming a little too rational, a little bit coherent. Can we just tone that down a little bit? And can you add some emotion to the mix? Yeah, I call it. You're being a head case right now. Okay, so let's. What do you feel about it? Let's get there. But there's this very, you know, since Descartes, let's blame Rene. All right, Rene gotcha. Descartes yeah. said, "I think, therefore I am." And what we understand now about about consciousness through the neuroscientist of emotion, Antonio Damasio, is no, you have to feel or you're not. Feeling is the is the basis of consciousness. And I know when I grew up in the sort of the new age spirituality, feeling was not if you were conscious, you were not emotional, right? So there was very much you're spiritual, you're intellectual, you you're not emotional. That's not how that works. Mm-hmm. But it turns out, yes, it's your emotions that help you attach meaning to data. They help you become conscious of the world. And Damasio had uh, stories of people who have something called um, absence seizures, which is a form of epilepsy, where you check out, like you are not aware of anything, but your body acts as an automaton. It might get up and walk, it might open a door, and then you end up in another room when you wake back up and go, what in the heck? Interesting. So what he began to realize is that the what in the heck is when the emotions come back online. So the person was awake, they were moving, they were acting, right? But they they had no consciousness of what they were doing. And so it's a, when emotions come online, that's when you can say someone's conscious. And I was just blown away by that because that's not what I was taught, right? Mm -hmm. That emotions take you away from rationality and logic and every good thing. That's very interesting. I love how you, uh, I love how you call out Descartes. Descartes. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) I love how you call out Renee. Uh, My bachelor's degree is in philosophy. So I I, I appreciate that that little shout out there. I I also wanted to tie this into Buddhism because I, I, this is another reason I find Buddhism so interesting is that in the instructions for meditation you you work from the bottom up not top down where mm-hmm. in western philosophy and exploration and even spirituality it's like cognition down yeah. and with meditation and vipassana meditators are asked 
from the very beginning, what is the feeling in the, what is the feeling, right? Yeah. What are you feeling in the, not what are you thinking about, yeah. but bring awareness to the body and then move from your body to the sense of feelings and emotions and moods. And then we move up. So I, I think you're, you're really onto something there with that idea that it basically in the West, uh, for lack of a better stereotype there, that we do come from it with this cognition down, that intelligence is thinking and a clear headedness. And that I even know just in Buddhist communities, it's often this understanding that if I become more mindful, then I won't have to worry about emotion. Like I can just, they won't come up and I don't, we don't have to have a relationship. It's kind of like getting the spiritual enlightenment is sort of a divorce from the emotions and just a stoicism, if you will, right? Which yeah. can become a spiritual bypass, which yeah. I talk to students about this idea that we kind of repress emotions thinking that that is some form of illumination if we're not impacted rather than learning to engage them relate to them differently and then engage skillfully which is what you talk about a type yeah. of skillful judgment skillful discernment I, I really appreciate that about the book for sure yeah and i'm also thinking something i've been looking at is there's very much a belief in the old triune brain idea that you have your emotions down here in the amygdala and it's like there's barking dogs and horror and then you have this sort of <laughs> mammalian brain and then you have this you know this human brain i'm like have you met humans but you know it's supposed to be the best one but the brain is not set up in layers the triune brain is not true we've known it for 25 or 30 years and the emotions appear in all parts of the brain right all you know, emotion circuits are everywhere so yes emotions visit the amygdala it's a lovely almond shaped space you would go there too if you had an option <laughs> right? let's go to the amygdala okay but there's so much right now that i'm hearing especially in trauma stuff which is very troubled right now like get out of your amygdala and i just look at them <laughs> I wanna see, you want to see an amygdala pal keep saying that to me <laughs> And, and this really speaks to your whole orientation towards emotions, which yeah. is getting away from the good, bad, runaway, repress, and to create a sense of, of balance. And you have this this great model in the book, and I just wanted to um, talk about this just for a second because it, it's a nice little segue here. Mm -hmm. You talk about four things that are essentially qualities or skills, if you will, related to sort of um, emotional intelligence or becoming the emotional genius. And I... I really liked how you laid this out. So I'm going to list them off. And then if you could just make a few comments, this would be great. Sure. So you said there are no negative emotions, which we've kind of covered mm -hmm. here, the valencing. Uh, then you have this great model, which is learning to channel emotions, mm -hmm. which is ba a balanced response. And then you have understand the nuance of emotions and identify and accept multiple emotions that are happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. This kind of four part framework, can you just speak? just a little bit so our listeners can understand how that works with emotions, these four qualities. In the art of empathy, I called those the four things that get in the way of emotional awareness or whatever. And now I'm calling them four keys to emotional genius. See, I'm selling it. And <laughs> <laughs> one is unvalence emotions, right? I think if you valence emotions, you will never understand them. Right. Right. Because you, can't, you, you can't, can't. You're basically not creating an authentic relationship no. with them if you're already. It's discriminating and then related. Yeah. You're, you're creating a negative framework over the top, which is already prejudicing. Prejudice. Yeah. 
<laughs> yes, discriminating so distinctly that yeah. you're not able to have a healthy interaction from the beginning. You're already in a one-down position. Yeah, you can't, you can't even do that. The other one is understanding nuance, which is understanding that emotions arise at many different levels of, of intensity from the softest that you might not even know it's that emotion unless you read the language of emotions <laughs> um, uh, you know to quite quite a high intensity of the emotion and the way to learn nuance is to increase your emotional vocabulary and the the book now has emotional vocabulary list in it and we've done that we've worked with that over the years it's now uh, organized by emotion, alphabetical, and by intensity. So you can sort of find yourself. I know I'm feeling something. Where's the word? As it turns out, research has shown that just developing a larger emotional vocabulary helps you regulate your emotions all by itself. You don't have to do any other work. So that's probably the most important thing is get yourself an emotional vocabulary. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I have it in the book. I also have it free on my site. And it's I think it's in eight languages now because people are coming and saying, can I translate it for you? I said, yes, do it. So That's wonderful. Yeah, yeah you've taken basically uh, a basic emotion wheel and gave, gave it some depth and breadth yeah. and some some needed complexity and nuance that wasn't there before. I, I love the way in the book how you divide the emotions into families. Yeah. So you have these different family categories. And as I was reading through, I just thought, oh, this is just set up as such a great resource because you can go to the different families. And in the beginning of each chapter, you also have this great description of what the basic messages are for the emotions, yeah. the different ways that we interact, and a beautiful description, I thought. And I, I went through there and was like, oh man, this is gonna be great for my clients. <laughs> This is awesome. I'm definitely, this is, I got to just start handing this book to people. But so, so then there was the nuance and then um, the multiple emotions. Did you find that we naturally don't pay attention to the complexity of mm -hmm. multiple emotional experience? Is that why you put that in there? Yes. And also we tend to make a big mistakes about specific emotions when we don't understand that it's normal for emotions to arise together. There's also a problem if language helps you regulate emotion. We have only four words in the English language for mixed emotions, which is how they function. So we have, it's a very, we have a paucity of language to be able to understand when emotions work together. And if we understand that emotions arise when there's something that you need support with, right? If there's a problem and the emotions didn't cause it, they're coming to help you. And so if it's a big problem, you probably need more than one emotion. Right. And so it's like the more the merrier. Mm -hmm. Come on, pals. But if you don't know that and if you've got this idea that some emotions are good and some are bad, you may experience normal human emotions as an attack. Right. You may experience them as suffering. Right. You may mm -hmm. just suffer and not even know how to teasel out which emotion is which. There's also a very um, prevalent idea, which is that anger is a secondhand emotion. You'll hear that everywhere. And it shows a lack of understanding of the purpose of anger, which is it sets boundaries. Now, how you set boundaries is up to your own training and skill, but that's what anger does. That's its heart is to set boundaries around what you value. So let's say you're in a public space and it's time to cry and your whole psyche knows that it is not safe for you to cry. Anger may jump out in front and set a boundary or you're afraid and you can't look like a coward. Anger may jump out in front of that. <clears throat> anger isn't acting as a secondhand emotion. Anger is doing what it does. 
it's doing yeah. what it does. It's protecting you, right? It's setting a boundary around these emotions you can't feel. And if you know what's happening, thank you, anger, you can go cry later, or you can talk about what you were afraid of later, rather than repressing it and saying, thank you, anger, let's see, is there a way <clears throat> that I could feel my sadness while you set that boundary up instead of pretend, you know, it's like a learning process as you work with your emotions. Yeah. Right. So you're basically, wow, that's, that's amazing. So you're basically working with complex emotional states yeah. and learning to notice that overwhelm because I know as a therapist, you know, people and, and Dharma is in the, in Buddhism where you're meditating in like five emotions and, you know, come <laughs> up and there's actually a, ironically there, we, sometimes it's referred to as a hindrance attack when you're overwhelmed because it feels like you're being attacked. Yeah. And what you're, what you're talking about here is that part of the reason we're feeling the overwhelm and that we're being attacked or assaulted is because we don't have the language to tease out the different meanings of the emotions and by gaining a deeper vocabulary understanding the messaging behind the emotions then instead of it being you know overwhelming then we can actually receive the message and, and act skillfully in a way that works for us whether it's yeah. in public or alone or so there's a healthy way of being rather than feeling um yeah just kind of discombobulated by the whole yeah. Experience. Yeah. I was thinking, and we're also, you know, at this point in the dynamic emotional integration community, we'll say, I need some anxiety stat, you know, like instead of <laughs> let's not be anxious. It's like, I got a lot to do anxiety. Where are you? I need you, my friend. Right. Instead of let's all pretend to be calm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I'll, I got to give a shout out to anxiety. The fact that you wrote a book uh, praising and honoring anxiety is great. And I just want to share just my experience with this, but in, in this directly connects to your book in a way. I was diagnosed with anxiety disorder early on in childhood due to trauma, and meditation was the first thing that helped. You know, meditation, yoga, breathing, tai chi, those kinds of things. So I really got into meditation early on mm -hmm. from anxiety yeah. and all the symptoms of anxiety. And But then after about 12, 13 years of meditation, I found that I was sitting with the anxiety but never engaging it. Right. Mm -hmm. So it would come up and I was mindful of it and I can notice the feelings and the sensations, but I felt stuck because I never had engaged. I never thought to turn towards the anxiety and say, hey, what are you doing here? Do you have a message for me? Are yeah. you telling me something? And a, a great skilled Dharma teacher actually had said, try talking, like, turn mindfulness towards it. And, and as soon as I did that, a whole new healing, Yeah. because suddenly anxiety wasn't something to be managed. It was something for me to skillfully respond to. So yes. anxiety makes me, you know, very proactive and it makes me like hyper attentive to details and, you know, I can get a lot done and those kind of things. And it can scare the crap out of me <laughs> and give me a panic attack. But learning to be able to not see it as an enemy, something that needs to be hidden away or you, you don't like it when it arises because, oh, I'm in this space and now it's here and you don't belong and I can't, those kind of things was really helpful and I, I just really enjoy your book for that reason that it it honors some of these emotions that we tend to give a bad name to and we're trying to uh, eradicate in a lot of ways minimally repress if not yeah. really you know sort of make fun of and shame ourselves for or shame others um, one other thing I wanted to say about the social part of this I, I really liked how you let me see if I can find the quote here here it is. The, the social part of this I thought was really interesting. This is from the book. You say, we all know what it's like to be near an angry parent. 
a depressed friend, an excited child, or a frightened animal. The feelings of others can travel. Mm-hmm. Can you just speak a little bit about the social dynamic that you're that for emotions like how does it work when I start learning about my emotions and hear the messages of my emotions? Does it automatically then create a bridge to the interpersonal healing or understanding others? Or is there different work in, in that part of it? Do you know what I mean? Like, is there a social dimension to this process or is it just built into the fact that I'm learning and letting the emotions share their wisdom as, as it is in a healthy way? In the beginning, in the beginning, Language of Emotions was a was a book for you as an individual. And mm-hmm. Art of Empathy was a book for you in the world. But for me, what I've noticed is the, the friendlier I am with my emotions, the more I understand them, the more I'm able to be with people who are feeling emotions, even ones that they don't know how to manage at all. Even though mm-hmm. they don't understand them, they can't figure them out. I know, okay, I'm in the presence right now of some panic and some rage. So what can I do, right? How can I bring boundaries forward? How can I help the person ask the questions for panic? You know, panic is about saving your life. And the rage means that they've had, they've experienced severe boundary violations. So I want to make sure that I don't step over their boundaries. Do you know what I mean? I, it helps me understand what's going on with other people so that I, hopefully not in an, an annoying way can support the emotion that's that's trying to help them lovely yeah i like that yeah it's like when you understand your own inner map then when you're in in when you're in consort with another person in dialogue with another person you can see on the map where they are and so you have a sense of not being afraid of their emotions mm-hmm. not overreacting or wanting their emotions to stop they're more of an acceptance of the emotions understanding their function like you said there i think lots of rage these days in society oh right goodness. lots of anger yeah. lots of frustration and people have different responses to anger and rage and what you said there sounded like a really amazing door that we could open that listening to people's anger and rage without being hurt by it offended by it connecting with ourselves and to them mm-hmm. in a way that it can open a healing dialogue but i think as you said earlier anger and these type of emotions that family where there's rage then becomes something where you're not supposed to do in public or do out loud or it shouldn't be disruptive or interfere with things and it needs to have a, a quiet basically it needs to be quiet <laughs> it needs to be quiet if you could tone down your anger we'd all be better and i think that's a mis misreading of the emotion i'm presuming you would agree with that right yeah, and I was thinking just as you were talking that anger is also a very gendered emotion. Female-identified body people are not supposed to have or show anger, right? And if a woman or a young person, a young girl, shows anger, there we have a word for her, and that rhymes with witch, right? And right, right. there's an equal gender problem in sadness and grief for male-identified people. If If a man is crying... There's got to be a lot of good reasons for it. And even still, we may call him a word that rhymes with wussy, right? Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. Lots, right, of, right. lots of gender control. The social shaming around how emotions should be expressed and who should be expressing them and where. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Thanks for pointing that out. Yeah. yeah, that's a big one. And I think your book really speaks to that liberation of, not, of, of that valencing that you're talking mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. has a social component because we not only... 
exile emotions in ourselves, but when other people have emotions that we don't want to get in touch with, then we encourage or shame them. We encourage them by shaming sometimes or social stigma uh, for them not to express those emotions. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot yeah. going on in this whole emotional world. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. A couple other questions I had, just going a little deeper into the book. Before we started this morning, you were talking about um, some insights into a couple mistakes people make with their emotions that are prominent. And I was curious if you could speak a little about that topic because I thought that was very interesting. I call them both attribution errors, and that's a mistake of identifying cause and effect. And for a lot of people, they will see someone, for instance, using anger in a violent way, and they will think, okay, anger is just bad. Anger is bad. They blame the emotion for the person's misuse of the emotion, right? Ah, okay. And that's yeah. not the heart of anger. The heart of anger is about setting boundaries. And uh, how we set boundaries is a function of our skill, right? So I can set a boundary. You know, I was thinking the fourth key to emotional genius, which is channeling emotions. Anger is a really good one to show because when anger comes forward, it means a boundary needs to be set. Now I can repress my anger and just go, it's okay. It's all right. I'm not really upset, but I can just lie to you. Um, or I can set a boundary. I can express it in a violent way and I can call you names. This is like, well, how don't you know? How many times have I told you, right? I can injure right. you. And if I injure you, you would probably think, well, anger is a bad emotion. Not just that Carla is a terrible person, <laughs> but anger is a right. bad emotion, right? And that might right, teach you. Right. But if I set boundaries, if I learn how to channel that emotion, and by that I mean like channeling water, you help the water go along in the way that it needs to go. So you help the emotion do what it came to do. To set a boundary, I might say, you know what? That doesn't work for me today. What about tomorrow? That's a boundary. That's anger. But most of us have never been able to identify anger in that way, right? Right. Yeah, it sounds like what you're really pointing out, to, pointing to is the separation of the emotion with how it's processed, yes. how it's it's manifest, how someone embodies it. Yes, yes. And that's, yeah, just thinking it, that's, that's very powerful because when we watch someone who is angry, if the actions are displeasing in some way, we rarely say the actions are the issue, right? Yeah. Or if ever, it's the emotion, like anger bad because of its representation in the world. Yes. Rather than its function and message. And wow, yeah, that's, I love how you put that. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, anger is, sometimes I'll see people, you know, feeling anger and I'm like, give me that anger. You don't even know what you're doing. Let me show you. <laughs> Let me show you that anger. Um, but um, yeah, that doesn't go over really well. Oh, so the second mistaken attribution is people blame emotions for causing problems, right? Because we all notice that when there's problems, there's, there's emotions. And if it's a bigger problem, there's a whole ton of emotions and they're just, well, they're awful. That's, that's the idea. But emotions don't cause problems. They come to help us deal with problems. So uh. the more the merrier, if you're dealing with something really intense, like a betrayal. Someone betrays your trust. You're going to feel shock, panic. You're going to feel jealousy or envy. You're going to feel anger. You're going to feel sadness, possibly grief, right? Those five emotions are all going to have a place in you, mm -hmm. helping you move through that betrayal, right? That's what they do. 
But again, if we don't understand multiple emotions, that they're necessary in many cases. Emotions are forms of intelligence. And who doesn't want to be more intelligent, right? It's like, <laughs> bring them on. I want all of them. <laughs> so, so I think that's a big thing is people notice when there's trouble, there's those damned emotions. Instead of there's trouble, I sure hope my emotions come to help me. Yeah. Right. Because then you use them skillfully when they arrive. Yeah. Yeah. And they help uh -huh. you. Yeah. Right. And that's amazing. Like, I love how you put it as an attribution error because we're attributing it's a it's a challenge with cause and effect yes. right it's it's looking at somebody who's nearby and mistaking closeness right yeah. for causality <laughs> yeah so i'm having trouble and there's all these emotions it must be the emotions <laughs> fault who can right. i blame <laughs> right which can be really healing i mean yeah. there's a liberation there that's possible when you can actually start to see that the emotions and the what you were, what we were talking about earlier is overwhelm is just a lot of people at the party yes. and you just got to figure out who's at the party and what their needs are and when you can get in touch and have the appropriate relationships then it becomes an okay experience and fruitful in fact yeah yeah identifying them is so important being able to identify them i had a, a dad tell me a story and he had shared the language of emotions with his kids and you know he had my little fold out um emotional vocabulary list and his child who was about eight uh, came in and was inconsolable, inconsolable. The, the child would not, was not able to stop crying. And the dad was like, ah, and he just gave him the vocabulary. They like, ah, read this. What are you feeling? <laughs> <laughs> and the child goes through it and, goes, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and he chooses three and he goes, huh. Hey, do you want to go on a bike ride? <laughs> it was great <laughs> because just having those words. And I think, for a lot of people, I don't know if you've ever had any kind of mystery thing, and then all of a sudden your doctor says, it's telangiectasias, and you're like, what? And even though it's a disease, you're like, what? I have, that's manageable, right? It's almost like... Right, the labels, yeah, the labels can help. Almost like the child found, oh, other humans have had these feelings. I'm not, I'm not an alien in this world. Let's go mm -hmm, for a bike ride. Mm -hmm. I just thought it was so funny. <laughs> yeah, it's a type of emotional literacy yeah. in a sense. Like without the the language to identify the plethora of emotions, that whole buffet of colors that we have underneath, yeah. right, that are emoting, then once we start giving labels to it, it's like, oh, I'm frustrated. Yeah. You know, oh, I'm worried. Because, yeah. you know, fear can be such a generalized, vague, okay, I'm afraid. But then there can be frustration and worry underneath. Yeah, and, yeah. Anger's hanging out in the background, or maybe there's some wounded insecurity maybe coming up to like these different kind of nuances of things that happen. And when we can put them into some yeah, just labeling, and I've had that experience before working with meditation students and clients, and I'm always so impressed when I hand someone a list of emotions, and mm -hmm. their first thought is, oh, wow, I didn't even realize I was experiencing that. And it, it's an immediate, yeah. the revelation is immediate. Yeah. As soon as you see the words, you're like, I didn't know that emotion was there and I can see it and feel it because now you have a texture to identify yeah. with the vocabulary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a wonderful healing. Yeah, I think your book does a really good job of that, especially, as I said earlier, the families of emotions and the way it's laid out. I, I find it very, uh, your user interface is very good <laughs> with, with the book, <laughs> with the way it's, the way it's laid out. I, I'm always a, because I'm a teacher and a student, yeah. I always like books that are laid out in a way that I can continue to go back to them to get the wisdom over and over. And I appreciate that about the, 
as I was talking about a more advanced uh, emotion wheel that you got going there. Thank you. One other thing I'd like to talk about, um, because it, it's something that's big in psychology, but also I, I talk about it quite a bit with uh, in Buddhism, and partly because the, the topic's repression. Mm -hmm. You and I talked about a little about this this morning before we started, and I wanted to get, just to get your take, you were talking about pondering the benefits of repression. Like what is the message of repression and who is it benefiting and who is it not benefiting? And, and the reason I bring this up is a while back, I gave a Dharma talk, a Buddhist talk on spiritual bypass. Oh yeah. And was talking about how spirituality is often used to repress rather than express. And we don't even know it at the time, yeah. but we, we overlay that which we don't like or we think is negative and we dance around that deeper part of ourselves using the very spiritual practice that's designed to awaken. And so I'm just curious, uh, what are your thoughts on repression? You know, as a, would you even consider that to be, a, is that an emotion in, in your model, repression? No, I don't think so. I think, you know, I was looking at the idea of who does it benefit that so many of us don't understand our emotions, can't access them, and have learned to repress most of them except for the mm. three happiness-based emotions. And I've really been looking at, at the function of social control. I've really been looking at how repressing emotions can be the only thing you can do to keep peace in the house or the relationship. Mm. Mm. I've also noticed, you know, in after Obama's presidency and all that sort of latent white supremacy came up and after the, the period of trying to kind of stabilize life for minorities and gender and sexual minorities, how this explosion of rage and racism came out and um, is still going on. And I'm just wondering about about the sort of repressive nature of of how we manage each other mm. and how mm -hmm. you know m many of us have been just horrified to see what is happening but also there's for me there's a sort of well at least they're hanging it all out it's not well managed it's not well expressed it's it's mostly injurious and abusive but they're getting it out and i'm hoping maybe it's like a paroxysm and then we're going to settle into something else. I mean, this is my hope. This is my hope. But I'm just seeing a lot of people who have felt repressed. Right? Gotcha. And yeah. And it's coming out. It's in, coming in out in the, this. Yeah. Right. In this. In, because it's come because of the bottled upness of it. It's coming out, like you said, in rage and, and kind of chaos yeah. and violence. Yeah. And that the and it's in part due to the social repression of it that, yes. that i'm hiding it away and now i'm able to let it out and so and and, I, and i've heard this before from uh, therapists kind of analyzing the situation with the rise in violence and racism mm -hmm. and the the uh, those type of abuses that we're seeing saying something similar that the collective psyche that's been hidden in the shadows for a really long time and now that it's coming out we can actually on the other side of it deal deal with it because now we can see it where before it was in a back room somewhere yeah but now with the internet and just changes in society as a whole we're seeing it out blatantly everywhere and so now though it's obviously unpleasant and harmful 
we can maybe perhaps think we can move from that into a better place on the other side of it now because we were the, it's there it's in the room and now we have to deal with it openly because it is open yeah it's like we can see the contours of it it's no longer hidden and mm-hmm. i was i was just thinking about that in terms of like the individual what has been repressed in me and is that there is there that kind of paroxysmal violence that's going to be coming out of me uh, or abusiveness that that i may be sort of like repression only works for a while mm-hmm. it only works mm-hmm. for a while and then it blows up really big um yeah so do people not know when they're asking you we don't have anger in this family young woman do you know what i mean we don't have anger in this family young man do they not know <laughs> this is not going to go well in the future. <laughs> right, right. It's the immediate. It's the immediate gratification of the like you said, keeping the peace. Yes. You know, some of those unconscious social rules around emotion is for temporary. Yeah, and what is that so peace? Speak. It's a, it's. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I was a very hyper empathic little kid, and I learned pretty soon that you do not tell the truth in social situations. You do not point out the crying man. You do not ask why we step over the homeless guy, right? You do not mm-hmm. ask those things because you'll be shushed. Um, right. I'm like, right. but it's right there. Why can't we look? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the freedom, as you know, the freedom of getting in tune with parts of yourself like that have been repressed and suddenly feeling them come to light, that feeling of weight off your shoulders you know and that emotional well-being that automatically springs when we turn light into those shadowed and darker places like you said that the shushening you know of the psyche essentially from the social uh the super ego i guess we could say in a sense like that that balance between the emotions wanting to come up to send the message and then the the egoic culture being like well yeah but we don't talk about that so you're gonna have to somehow well box it away or deal with it in in the dark yeah because we don't have a place for you to be we're not allowed to see it in the light because and, and i really could go back to what you were saying what i what i liked about the book was the social implications for me were just really powerful this i could start to see as i was looking at the exercises that if people really were more in tune with had healthier experiences and relationships with their emotions then they can relate to others automatically better because we start to no longer have that social shaming when people are in pain Mm -hmm. or like you said in poverty or distress Mm -hmm. or mental illness Mm -hmm. where we don't shy away from it and socially socially repress it but we then allow that to come out into the light and we collectively manage it for the well-being of ourselves and others i thought that was there's a lot of um implicit social benefit to your model that i I really appreciate it i I thank you for putting it in those uh, terms it's it's some amazing stuff thank you i'm realizing that it's it's a freedom school it's it's a way to set people free from social Mm -hmm. control and even when i'm in a place now where there's a lot of social control and emotional repression i just put up my boundary and think my own thoughts right (laughs) (laughs) i love it that's great oh thanks that's that's awesome Well, Carla, I really appreciated hanging out with you today. Thank uh, you. I I really appreciate your your warmth, your intelligence, and and the writing is beautiful. I, I definitely am looking forward to continuing to move through uh, this new edition of the book, and I, I just I think the model is really helpful. And as a meditator and Dharma teacher and therapist, I think this is just helpful for everyone. It really is. I think Thank that you. this the time for us to kind of 
bring emotions out based on what we're experiencing in culture is just this wonderful opportunity. And I think this is a, a really great guide. So I appreciate you writing it and I'm getting a lot out of it and I hope others uh, will too. So thanks for joining us. Much appreciated. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Uh, where can folks get a hold of you or in touch with you or see what you're doing? Do you got social media? Uh, you want to shout out your um, website so folks can, I'll also put it in the show notes, of course, sure. but just let folks know um, where they can get in touch with you. Uh, I am at CarlaMcLaren.com and our online learning site is EmpathyAcademy.org. And the book is available wherever books are sold. And this is coming out in June, yes. correct? I know I'm reading a pre-release copy, yes. but you're, uh, it's coming out in June. Do you know when? Is there a drop date? Yes. Is there a specific June 27. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Uh-huh. Take care. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.